Brother Nathan said, Happy New Year. You know, every time that a new year comes around, it, it brings about a lot of various thoughts. And I, I think one of those thoughts is, as we think about a new year, that kind of gives us an idea that this is a time for transition. It's often a time that we look at life and we start to examine what we want to change, where we want to be, what do we want to be different about next year than last year. And so we make what we call resolutions. And, and I want to give you an idea about resolutions today because one of the things that, that this was from 2022 and, and all the polls that I looked at were very, very similar. So the numbers might be a little different, but, but the things that people wanted to make resolutions about in their life were very similar. And so top of the deal, exercise more. That's very common. To eat healthier, to lose weight, to spend more time with family and friends. To live more economically, that is to use your money better, to not be as wasteful, uh, to spend less time on social media, which we'll talk about later, to reduce stress on the job, and to quit smoking. You know, if we could just summarize the things that we see here, what people are really looking at is how can I better my physical health, how can I better my mental health, how can I better my emotional health. I, I think that's, that's a good way of summarizing what people are usually looking at when, when they make resolutions. So what about us? Should we make resolutions? And I would say yes, we should make resolutions. I don't necessarily think that it, it's, it's necessary to wait for January 1st to make those resolutions, but we ought to make resolutions because if we're honest, we all need some, to change some things in our life. None of us are perfect. None of us have everything figured out. And we do things that are against the will of God. We need to make resolutions. These are Physical in nature, though, and, and I believe that these things are really more symptomatic of a problem, not necessarily the problem. And so let's think about, I just want to think about three spiritual resolutions that we can all make. And these are just suggestions. This isn't really going to be the focus of our lesson. I just want to simplify this. If you're going to make resolutions about your spiritual life this year, I would suggest, number one, that you give more attention to God. More attention to God. What does that mean? What does that look like? That means we spend more time in his word. We spend more time pondering his word. Not just reading it, but meditating on it. We spend more time around God's people. We spend more time coming to the assemblies. We give God more of our attention and less to the world. Number two, pray every day. And when I say pray every day, I don't just mean make sure that you say some type of prayer. I mean find a private place like Jesus suggested and just spend time between you and God. Pray every day. And when you pray, pour out your heart. Pour your spirit out before the Lord. Be honest with the Lord. He knows your heart. Pour your heart out before the Lord. Do that every single day. And number three, don't do it alone. You say, okay, that one's kind of hit me out of nowhere. What do you mean don't do it alone? I mean don't do it alone. Actively engage your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pursue relationships. Pursue opportunities to spend with one another, strengthening and encouraging and comforting one another for the spiritual life's sake. Do those three things in your life. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're going to win. That's what you're going to do. You're going to win the battle. You're going to win the battle. But I want to talk about the battle this morning because here's the truth. We looked at the top eight resolutions for 2022. Do you know what the top uh, eight resolutions were for 2021? To exercise more, to eat less, to quit smoking, spend less time on social media. And you go back until social media disappears and the resolutions all look the same. You know what that tells us? 
That tells us that every year people want to change the same things. So that means that every year people want to change the same things, and they don't change the same things. You know what that tells us? That just desiring to change what you're aware of, it doesn't work. It's not enough. I mean, that's important. You have to be aware of it. You have to want it, but it's not enough. It's not enough to change them. But one of the things we do see in Scripture is we see a man who made resolutions in his life and he won. And that was the Apostle Paul. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There's three words I want to pull out here. Paul says, I fought and I finished and I kept it. If you're going to win, you've got to fight, you've got to finish, you've got to hold on. You think about resolutions. You know, sometimes the things that I think about I need to change, we, we might even put those in what we call the trivial category. They're not really like earth-shattering or monumental. They're not, they're not the great big things. It's just something I don't like about, you know, the way I communicate or or, or, or maybe just a habit that I have. And, and, and those things, I don't want to minimize the importance of those things, but they're not necessarily monumental. But when you think about what Paul had to change in order to be a Christian, I want you to know all those things were monumental. I'm certain that he probably had some trivial things that he probably struggled with as well, but they were monumental. And for us to think that because Paul succeeded that that means he didn't struggle is very naive. Paul struggled. Paul dealt with the same type of temptations that you and I do, the same type of pride issues that you and I do. But what we do know is he succeeded. And so if we look at Paul's life, we can know how we can succeed in keeping the resolutions that we make. So I want to go to our text from the morning, Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to come back to these thoughts a little bit later. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Finally, he says, My brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And I think what he means there is, is I know I'm having to write the same things to you, but that's not tedious to me because it's for your good. Because that's safe for you if I write the same things to you. And he says this, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. He doesn't literally mean beware of dogs like watch out for dogs. See, he's talking about those that are uh, attacking the church, those that are trying to, that are the adversaries of the church. Watch out for those that would persecute you. Watch out for people that are working evil. Watch out for those Jews that are trying to tell you that you need to circumcise your flesh. He says, we are the circumcision. Who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now listen, and have no confidence in the flesh. As Paul characterized himself and the Christians at Philippi, here's what he said. We don't have confidence in the flesh. That's not who we are. Now I want to ask you today, is that who you are? Where's your confidence? What is it that you, and if you look at the word confidence, he's going to use that word here again in verse 4. What, what does that mean? It means what I rely on and what I trust in. What I rely on. And what I trust in. What do you rely on? What do you trust in? Because here's something we know. The flesh is the roadblock to success. It's not the way to success. Our fleshly side, our carnal side, is not what's going to help us win. It's what's going to hold us back and keep us from winning. And so Paul says this, I might have confidence in the flesh. And if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. You might think, well, that's prideful. No, he's just being truthful. And what he's saying is this. If you're really going to rely on your flesh, well, I could do that more than you could. And here's why. 
Because Paul says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now this is why it's important that we read the verses that precede that so we can understand why Paul brings these things up. Because he's saying, these are things that are according to my flesh that I had confidence in, that I relied in, that I trusted in. That's the life that Paul lived before he met Jesus. That's the life that he lived before he became a Christian. Paul and his identity and his status and his mindset, his ideology, his purpose, everything was wrapped up in these things. These are not trivial things. These are things that were extremely important to Paul. His circumcision, now that he's teaching all these churches, don't worry about being circumcised. You don't need to be circumcised. You are the circumcision. We have been circumcised through, through, in a spiritual way through baptism. That used to be important to him. He wore it like a badge of honor. I was circumcised the eighth day according to the law. I'm of the stock of Israel. I'm of one of the 12 tribes. Not only that, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You know what that means? I'm not just a Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. <laughs> As touching the law, a Pharisee. Now, we know about the Pharisees, don't we? Paul was a Pharisee. Paul said, you think I was zealous for God? I was so zealous I persecuted the church. Well, we look at that and we go, well, that's backwards. Well, not if you're tied up in all this. It's not. Not if you got this mindset, this ideology, this purpose. And he says, and is touching the righteousness which is of the law, I was blameless. And if you don't think those things were important to Paul, well, listen to the next verse. He said, but what things were gained to me? Now, he doesn't say what things were gained for me. He says what things were gained to me. I viewed them as such. I viewed these things as important things, things that would help me win, things that would help me fulfill my purpose, my goals. But he said, what I did, all those things that were gained to me, I counted them as loss. That's the first step to winning. You've got to find things in your life that are your roadblocks. Find things in your life that are hurting you spiritually, and you've got to count them as loss. And when you count something as loss, it doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't have any value to you. It means you've counted it as having no value to you in spite of the fact that it actually has value to you. See, these things were gained to him in his mind, in his ideas. So he had to look at them differently and say, okay, I'm going to esteem them differently than I used to. I'm going to count them as loss. So what does he mean? Well, he expounds on that. What do you mean count it as loss? And he's going to put it in language that is just very difficult to misunderstand. He says, yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. What do you mean I count them as loss? He said, I counted them as dung. You know, that's strong language. We may just look right over that. That's very strong language. And I don't want to get graphic, and I don't want to get silly today, okay? But it's strong language for a reason. And the reason is this. Would a person pay for dung? You might say, well, you know, people use it for fertilizer. Don't miss the point. We're not talking about fertilizer. Would you buy a box of dung? Would a person give their heart to dung? Would they give their attention, their heart, their mind to dung? Would someone fight for dung? Would they run the race for dung? Okay, I've said enough, right? You say, okay, we're getting tired of you saying dung. I want you to get the point here. When you count something as dung, that means it's waste. It's worthless. It no longer needs a presence in my life because I have looked at it and I've decided it's worth nothing. Now again, do you think Paul thought that his circumcision 
his lineage, his law-keeping, his status as a Pharisee were dung. He didn't. So he had to count them that way. They're an important part of who he was, but he had to count them that way. And here's the key to all this. Here's the key to it. The only way we're going to count things as dung that are important to us is if we compare it to what's more important. So look what he says. I count all things for loss or but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. I believe the ESV words this. I count it for the surpassing value or worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And so what Paul's saying is this. If I want to know Jesus, I've got to count these things as dung. Because knowing Jesus is far superior to anything in my life that I might view as important or valuable or gain. And so if that's the truth, if these things are actually going to harm me, they're going to hurt me from knowing Jesus, I don't need them. They're worth nothing compared to knowing Jesus. It's about what's superior, about what's better. And so when I ask you today, what's the most important thing to you in your life? And if the answer is anything other than knowing Jesus Christ, the answer is wrong. It's wrong. So there's three things I want to think about that Paul gave up. He gave up his status. That's number one. He gave up his position. He gave up the race that he had been running. You know, we often call that, uh, in a worldly sense, when we talk about someone chasing after position or status, what do we call it? The rat race, right? It's a race. Why? Because you got to run it and you got to keep it up. Paul gave that up. He gave up his status and his position. He gave up his ideology. Why? Because he had to fight for the faith. He had to keep the faith. He had something different. He had to change everything that he believed and thought. You know how difficult that is? To think that you know something all of your life, to be so solidified, so cemented in your resolve that you are willing to persecute the church and then one day just leave all that on the ground and walk away from it. He had to completely change the way he thought. And number three, he had to change his purpose. He had to change the battle that he was fighting for. So one thing about status first off. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 4. I want to get into the mindset of Paul saying, I was concerning the law of Pharisee. What was the culture and traditions of being a Pharisee. And let's look at what Jesus said. Jesus said of the Pharisees, they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So this gives us a real insight right here about the Pharisees. Here's what he says. He said, oh, they'll tell everybody else, you must do this, you must do this. But he said, they won't even lift their finger to do those things. You know why? Why? intention because what was their intention and that matters why you do what you do matters and notice he says all their works they do to be seen of men this is this is their whole problem they're worried about status they're worried about what people think they're worried about optics they're worried about well what will people think if they see me do this and Jesus says that's their intention behind why they do what they do. He said they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garment. Not, and so not to get in a bunch of detail, basically what he means is the things that would make them look holy on the outside, they enlarge those things so that everybody would make sure and see them and go, oh, that's a holy man. But what did Jesus say? They do that to be seen by men. He said they love the best places at feasts, the best seats 
in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. You know what they liked? They liked people to tell them that they were great. They wanted everybody to see them and validate them and affirm them and say, you are great. What do we call that? Status. They wanted status in the world. Continuing in Matthew 23, later on in the chapter, Jesus said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greediness and self-indulgence. So Jesus said, you're putting on a front. You're putting on a show. It's like you put on a costume. It's like cosplay, spiritual cosplay. You put on this outward garment. You put on all these uh, works so that people will see what you're doing but he said I see the inside I see the inside on the inside he says what you're full of is greed and self-indulgence you know one of the reasons why we have such trouble with resolutions because it's me focused that's why it's me fo- it's not Christ-centered it's me-centered and if you're doing it for you that's what we always hear hey don't do that for anybody else you do that for yourself what did Paul say I do this for Jesus Why? Because I'm not king. I'm not Lord. I'm not the one I need to be pleasing. I'm not the one I need to be making happy. Jesus is Lord. I'm supposed to be doing what he wants. That was not their intention. Not in any way, form, or fashion. And here's what it caused them. Blindness. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. So we worry about everything out here and not in here. If you want real, true change in your life, it starts here. It's heart. Why is it that I need to exercise more? Because I don't have a heart for exercise. I don't. I'm speaking personally here. I tell Toya on a weekly basis, I'm going to start eating better. You know what I do? I go to the plaza and get enchiladas. (laughs) Because they're good. Because I don't have a heart for it. Now, those are physical, worldly things, right? You've got to have a heart for it. These men didn't have a heart for it. They thought they did. They thought they were good. They thought they were fooling everyone. And I bet they were fooling most people. But I'll tell you who they weren't fooling. They weren't fooling Jesus. And they weren't fooling God the Father. And they probably weren't fooling the people that really knew them best. They weren't fooling them either. And he says, woe to you, in verse 27, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite, which again means play actors, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You know, I went to a cemetery down in Cisco, Texas, little town in Texas. They got a big cemetery out there, and it's very well manicured. I mean, there's big monuments and huge statues and everything, and somebody goes out there and cleans that place. And you go out there, and I, you know, it, it might sound kind of morbid, but you go through there, and I, I took my camera out there. I was taking pictures. I, I thought it was just, it was, it was beautiful, the amount of attention that they did. But you know what? Six feet under the ground, there's a bunch of boxes full of rotten corpses. I know that sounds morbid, but that's the point he's making. He says, you're not this whited sepulcher that everybody sees. You're rotten. The inside is rotten. And what was it that drove them to be rotten? That drove them to worry about the outward appearance, but not worry about what was in the inside. I'll tell you what drove them. Status, status, status. All they worried about was what men thought. You know, this is the same thing Jesus was tempted with. 
You ever think about that? We see three temptations of Jesus when he is out being tempted of the devil. And one of those three things is status. This is, this is amazing to me. Luke records in verse 5, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, listen, in a moment of time. Can you even imagine that? How overwhelming it would be to see all of the glory of all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now here's the question I've got. Why did the devil take him to a high mountain and show him the kingdoms? Does, it's Jesus. Do you, do you think Jesus doesn't know what those kingdoms are, what they look like, who's ruling in them? He knows all those things. So why show it to him? Because usually, if somebody's going to desire status and authority and power, it's because of what they see. And don't ever underestimate the power of what you see. Because Satan's usage is to show us something that we desire. And so he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said, all this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. You know what Jesus didn't say? You're a liar, Satan. You don't, you don't have that power. You couldn't give those things to me. He didn't say that. You know why? Because Satan's probably telling the truth. I've been allowed to take these things and give it. But you know what Jesus does say? He says, I'm not worshiping you. <laughs> worship belongs to God. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you, shall you serve. I don't believe this is just about Jesus saying, I'm not worshiping you, but Jesus also saying, I'm not exalting myself. See, here's what Jesus knew. Could Satan have possibly given the, the authority and the, the glory of those things to Jesus? Possibly. But I'll tell you, that doesn't matter to Jesus. You know why? Because he's going to get all those things anyway. He's going to be Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's going to rule the entire world. Jesus is going to get all that power, but he's going to get it the right way. And you know how that is? Not by exalting himself, but by humbling himself before the Father in humble submission and obedience. And what does the Bible teach us? If we exalt ourselves, we'll be abased. If we humble ourselves, we will be exalted. And that is the irony of us seeking status. Is the more you seek status, the more you're going to be abased by God. So it's a fruitless endeavor. Peter was not immune to this. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face. This is Paul speaking, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those <coughs> who were of the circumcision. Now I want to think about what he's saying here about Peter and Peter's behavior. So here's the idea. Peter has been at Antioch. He's been working with the church there, which is primarily Gentiles. And, and, and there's some Jews there too, but they're not those primary Jews. They're not those high-status Jews. And so they're not around. And so when they're not around, Peter will sit with the Gentiles and eat the Gentile food, which is not lawful according to the law of Moses. But now these brethren that come from James, that have come from Jerusalem, have made their way up to Antioch, and these are high-status men. And what does it say Peter did? He acted differently. And the question's why. Why act differently? Do you think Paul was upset because he was sitting with those men eating? Was that what was wrong, for him to sit with those people and eat? No. He didn't care who he sat with. He cared about why he was doing what he was doing. What was he doing? It says he feared those who were the circumcision. What, what do you think it means, fear, here? What's he afraid of? You think he's afraid they're going to kill him? Look, these are, these are disciples of Jesus. These high-status Jews that had come from Jerusalem, 
they're disciples of Jesus. They're not going to kill Peter for eating with the Gentiles. That's not what, he's not afraid about dying. What's he afraid of? What they'll think, what they'll say, how they'll act toward him, how they'll treat him. You know what Paul says? Paul says, and the rest of the Jews, that's the Jews at Antioch, also played the hypocrite with him. You know what Peter's doing right now? Being a hypocrite, being a play actor. So that even Barnabas, this is the only negative thing we ever have about Barnabas in Scripture. Barnabas is called the son of consolation. Barnabas was one of Paul's companions as he went out and spread the good news. But he says what Peter did drug away even Barnabas to be a hypocrite and get carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw, now listen to this, this is very important. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. See what happened? What happened to them? Even though knowing Christ is the superior, it's what surpasses everything else. At this moment, they set that aside for status, for relationships that are worldly and carnal. And I'll tell you, that's one of the greatest things that I believe Paul suffered in this life. All of the friends and relationships that he had developed over all the years of being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of being a Pharisee in Jerusalem, all of that is now gone. He lost a lot of relationships. You know why? Because he counted them as dung for the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. You know what he's telling Peter and the rest of these Jews? That's not who you are. It's not who you are. Why are you acting like someone else? This isn't who you are. I know you. I know what you've been doing. I know you've been eating with the Gentiles. I know you've been living in the manner of the Gentiles. So why are you acting like something else? And I'll tell you, there's a grave danger today. Things have changed in the last few years. Gravely changed. Because I'll tell you, the new status symbol, it's a virtual world. It's not even a real world but it's a world we get sucked into. And you know what? The rating system is very, very shallow, but very, very powerful. How many followers do you have? How many likes did you get? How many shares or positive comments did you get? You think, well, I don't care about any of those things. I hope you're right. I hope you don't care about any of those things, but a lot of people do. A lot of people do. Because I'll tell you what they do. They look at their reality that they've created their reality show that they're the producer, the director, the writer, and the star of, and they compare it to everybody else's reality show. And if they don't get the right feedback, you know what we do? We change the story. We just change the story. And so they just put things out there. Well, people didn't like that. Well, let's put something different out there. So they put that out there. Oh, people like that. I'll give them more. And people give them more and more, and then all of a sudden, people get tired of that. And so what do they do? They change it again and change it again. I want you to know this is, this is not some assumption. Numerous studies are done in universities. They're done by clinical, uh, psych- psychological clinical uh, studies. All these things, all the data looks the same. Depression, anxiety, and aggression have all been linked to excessive screen time and can even spur psychotic-like features. He says this is a study that was done by Newsweek. Further research shows that as more kids use digital media, their social skills erode. Isn't that interesting? Social media erodes people's social skills. You know why? Because it's not real. It's not real. You don't believe that? It's not real. And I'll tell you why. Because if I'm sitting across the table from you having a conversation You can see everything that's going on. My tone, my inflections, my body language. 
you hear the volume of my voice, and you get on social media, and I can say the most gentle thing to somebody, and they just explode. You know why? Because none of those things are present. We've lost our ability to communicate effectively. Why? Because it's not an effective means of communication. And all of a sudden, we get these things out there, and nobody knows the effect that it's going to have, and they don't even ask that. It's just, how can we make money? If you don't think it's about money, (laughs) your eyes are closed. It's all about money. This is a business. It's a business. Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat. It's a business. And you're the product. They want to sell you. That's what they want to do. They want to sell you to advertisers, to Google. We're the product, but you know what we think? We're the star. No, you're not. You're not the star. But I'll tell you, even though it's a virtual world, it has real-life consequences. So what does excessive screen time look like? So studies have shown that children, 8 to 12, screen time per day, 5 hours and 33 minutes. That's average. Teens screen time, that is 13 to 19, 7 hours and 22 minutes a day. 7 hours and 22 minutes a day. Adults, 2 hours and 27 minutes a day. Say, so, hey, that's a lot better. That's a lot of time to be absorbed into something that's not even real. So, again, you may say, well, where, where did you get your data? And I'll tell you, go research it for yourself because it doesn't matter because, again, all of the research looks exactly the same. You're not going to go and find some research that says, oh, no, none of these things exist in social, excessive social media use. In fact, it's quite the opposite. No, they're all the same. And I'll tell you, that's telling because in a world right now that's being dominated by the money that's going into social media because a lot of what we're seeing in society is being driven by social media, it's interesting that people are brave enough to put this stuff out there and to say these things are negative, they're bad, they're hurting people. And so this is actually mostly regarding teenagers, this data here. And so I want to ask, why is this happening? And I'll tell you, number one is cyberbullying. And that sounds like one of those words that somebody made up. But it's a very real thing, cyberbullying. You say, I don't even know what that is. I'll tell you what that is. It's when a bunch of people gang up on somebody on their social media platform, and they degrade them, and they tear them down. You don't think that has an effect? You know what almost every school shooting has been linked to? Bullying. Bullying and a bad home life. Yeah, it's hurting kids. You know why? Because they don't know it's not a real world. They get sucked into this thinking that this is who they are. This is their identity. This is their personality. This is their real life. And so when somebody doesn't like the real life, that's a very hurtful thing for people to not accept me and not like me and like who I am. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. What people are hearing, it's hurting them. I'll tell you the other thing, it's, it's just too much information. It's too much information because, because in, in, in the real world, if I go out and I'm working out in town and I'm interacting with a, a certain number of people, I might interact with, I don't know, 20 to 30 people. And not every one of those 20 to 30 people are really going to give me their, their thoughts you know, about whether or not they like what I'm doing or dislike what I'm doing. So in the real world, we don't get a whole lot of disapproval or approval. But on social media, everything is approved or disapproved. And you know what? Even if you don't like my post, that's a disapproval. That's a disapproval. So if I put something out there and I get 10 likes and I got 1,000 friends, I go, people hate me. They don't like me. They don't like who I am. They don't like what I do. You think, that's crazy. No, that's reality. That's reality. It's a very dangerous thing. Virtual relationships are not real, so they're expendable. Even if you're part of my family, 
I don't like what you're saying. I just unfriend you or block you. We'll still come to Thanksgiving or Christmas and act like everything's okay, but it's not. It's not real. Positive affirmation in clinical studies have been related to drugs. The same dopamine releases in neurological studies look like cocaine when people are getting an excessive amount of likes and positive comments. A drug. That's addicting. But what happens when it stops? Then you got to be on there more and put out more, share more, and do more. Influencers. That's a new term. You may not even know what that is. An influence. What's an, what's an influencer? Influencer are the people who have lots of followers, you know, several hundred thousand to several million followers. They call them influencers. Why? Because obviously they're carrying a great amount of influence in the world because people want to be around them or be like them. You know what our teenagers don't realize? Those influencers, they've got people that put the right lighting on them, people that they have makeup artists. They have people that help them write their scripts. And these kids watch these influencers and they go, I want to be like that person. I want to have what they have. It's not real. It's a television show on, on the internet. It's scripted. And then I'll tell you what else they see. And this is especially with young girls. Especially with young girls. They see other girls online. And they see them through filters. Their face looks perfect. Their body looks perfect. You know why? Because they can go in with just an app. They can download off the app store. And they can shape their face the right way. Shape their shoulders the right width. Shape their stomach the right size. And they put those filtered pictures out there. And these young girls see those pictures. And then they go look in the mirror. And you know what they see? They see the scars and the blemishes and the acne and everything else that's real to real life. And then they look at those women and go, I'm ugly. I'm hideous. And it destroys their self-esteem. Listen, young ladies. It's not real. What you see is not real. I know everything in their life is positive. It's exciting. The fame, the money, the attention. It's not real. It's a charade. You don't believe that? You know what the talk has been lately? It's been about a, a man who's known as Twitch. Twitch was a dancer. And uh, he, he made it. Uh, he was on a show, So You Think You Can Dance. Uh, got really big. And everything you look at on his social media, you know what it is? It's of him dancing. It's of him smiling. It's of him going to having exciting opportunities and being around all of his friends. Everything on his social media looked great. And everybody's puzzled because he went to a hotel one night and he took his own life. You know why? Because it wasn't real. He was hurting. He was hurting. I'll tell you, a lot of people are hurting. They're hurting. Don't get sucked into this. This need for status. This need for affirmation. This need for attention. It's nothing more than Satan going, you can have it all. All you got to do is pretend. Just be somebody else. And I believe Paul would look and say, that's not who you are. It's not who you are. That's not who God called us to be. For I say through the grace given to me that everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. If we think we are more important than the other people in this room, I want you to know something. We are deluded. You know why? Because here's what he says. If you think that way, you ought to think soberly. You know why? Because you're not. You're not seeing straight. You're not thinking right. Don't ever get too big for your britches. Don't ever think you're greater than other people. If we think that our world is the most important world, our problems are the only problems that matter, our purpose is the only purpose that matters, we're deluded. And Paul says we ought to think soberly. We ought to think soberly. Seriously. See the right way. If anybody in this world could have looked at his status and said, I am greater. It was Paul. 
for the things he did, for who he was, being an apostle. But you know what Paul's attitude was? Paul said this, to me, who am less than the least. How do you get less than the least? It's hyperbole, isn't it? I am less than the least. I'm the bottom. And he says, to me it was given. What Paul said is, I know what I've got. I know who I am. I know what position. I know what status I have. But here's the thing. I didn't really work for that. God gave that to me. He gave that to me. And be found in him. You see that? Where's our value? Where's our worth? It's not in this. It's in Jesus Christ and in him alone. It's in him alone. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now here's what Paul said in the same chapter later. He says, For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even as I weep, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who have their minds on earthly things. What does he say? He says, these are the enemies of Jesus. It's those people that seek after their carnal appetite. Their God is their appetite. They do what feels good. That's their desire. I want to do what feels good. He said, they set their mind, their attention on carnal things. Who do you call them? The enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because that's not what God's called us to. It was mentioned earlier that we need to be a light to the world. That's not the kind of light we need to shine. That you do what feels good. That you follow after your appetite. That you say what feels right. It's that we do what's right. And I tell you, it's because we've lost our shame. The world has lost its shame. Israel lost their shame. As Jeremiah is writing this, as, as being a prophet of God, he is talking about the state of God's people in these verses when he said, Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall at the time I punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths, whereas the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for yourselves. But they said, we will not walk in it. Also I set a watchman over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Why is it that they lost their ability to be ashamed? Because God said, you need to stop doing that and go back to what I told you to do before. And they said, well, I'm not doing that. It was rebellion. And I'll tell you, the more you rebel, the less you'll be ashamed. And what did Paul say in that verse that we just read in, in Philippians chapter 3? Whose glory is in their shame. You know what he means by that? They glory in things that are shameful. Is that not the world we're living in? Where the things that are shameful according to God are now celebrated in society as being virtuous. They glory in their shame. Why? We lost our ability to blush. And I'll tell you, when things are just shoved in your face over and over and over, it'll bother you at first. But the more you tolerate it, the more you look at it, the more you let it be in your face, the less it'll bother you until it's really not even shameful at all. You don't blush. And I'll tell you what we can't do. We can't be like these people and say, well, you know, somebody told us about those things, but we ain't doing that. We're not going to walk in that. I'm not going to listen to that. I'll tell you, we see some people in the New Testament that made great sacrifices to win Christ. And one of that was the, was the Ephesians. In Ephesians, in Acts rather, Acts chapter 19 about the Ephesians, it says, Many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. You know, I've always been curious as to why did they count the worth of these things first? I don't know. 
but I'm glad they did. You know why? Because it makes it a little bit more impactful for me to know. Because if I just go, hey, you know, they took, brought some books together and they burned them, I say, big deal. I got some books I'd burn. <laughs> Who cares? But 50,000 pieces of silver, one piece of silver was a day labor's wage for one day's work. 50,000 days work worth of books they brought and they burned them you know why because these were things that used to be gained to them these were things that used to represent their purpose and their ideology and they knew if they didn't get rid of them they'd be a temptation to them and they couldn't win jesus so you know what they did they counted them as dung even though they were worth fifty thousand pieces of silver you want to change do that and you'll change be willing to count the things that are hurting you as loss. The things that are roadblocking you as loss. Because as long as we don't count them as loss, it doesn't matter what we decide to do, those things will get in our way 100% of the time. So first you've got to identify those things. Here's what Paul said. Every athlete. So we talked about running and fighting earlier. Right? Running and fighting in, in Philippians. What's he talking about here? Running and fighting. Here's what he says. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. What's he mean by that? He means the reason why athletes train the way that they do and practice the way they do is because they want to win the prize. And that's, that's how we are, right? We want to win. Does anybody like to lose? I mean, raise your hand if you like to lose. I'm glad, because we need to have a talk. If you like to lose, that, that's, that's a, a very defeated mindset. Right? Nobody likes to lose. We all want to win. And he said, you know, that's what these people want. They want to win. So what do they do? They focus and they fight and they run and they practice. They're disciplined. But he said, that's, we're not trying to win that kind of prize. We're not doing this so people will put a medal on us or, or say, yeah, you're a winner. It's not about that. He says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should become disqualified. You know what Paul is saying here when he says, I don't run aimlessly? He's saying, I'm not running without aim. I'm not running not knowing where I'm running, not knowing where the finish line is. What did Paul say? I finished my race. You know why he finished his race? Because he kept running toward the goal, the right goal. And he said, I don't fight as one beating the air. You know how you win a fight? You beat the other person into submission. That's how you win a fight. You make them quit. But I'll tell you how you don't win a fight. You don't punch the air in front of your enemy. <laughs> you don't care about that. All, I mean, don't bother him. You know, you see these guys shadow boxing. They're not beating up nobody. They might look impressive. They ain't winning. They're just punching the air. What are you fighting for? Who are you fighting? Who's your enemy? Who is Paul's enemy? Do you know what the word discipline is here in the Greek? I discipline my body. It means to punch in the face. Who's the enemy? I'm the enemy. Paul said, I know who I'm fighting. I know what I'm fighting. I'm the adversary. My flesh, that's what I'm fighting against. And he said, I fought that fight. I ran that race, and I kept the faith. And I'll tell you, friends, your purpose is not to glorify yourself. It's not to gain a following. It's not to gain status in this world. It's not to leave some type of legacy that when you die, everybody comes back and says, look at all the things that he accomplished. We all have the same purpose because it's God that works in us both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. You want to make a resolution today? Here's what you need to resolve in your mind. I'm going to fulfill my purpose in Jesus Christ. And my life's going to become centered 
around glorifying him in everything that I do, in shining the light of his glory to every person that sees me. And I'm not doing that for me. I'm doing that for him. You know how you're going to do it? You're going to give more attention to God, and you're going to pray every day because that's going to get your mind focused on your purpose, and you're not going to do it alone. And I'll tell you, if we do that, I'll tell you, we'll fulfill our purpose in God because people get in that water, and it ain't just about getting them in that water. Then it's about getting Christ in their heart so that they're living the way that we're living. But if we don't live that way, why would they want to live that way? They're going to follow our example, aren't they? They will. People will follow our example, but we've got to set the right example. Let's be resolved to all do better, to all change in our life. And I want, I want to skip ahead to, to finish our lesson with something that Peter said, because I know I'm running a little bit long. But I want you to know that even Peter was thinking about this sacrifice idea. And he says to Jesus, see, we have left all and followed you. You know what he's essentially saying? We're the ones that did this. What's in it for us? And here's what Jesus says. Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands. I want to stop right there. You know what we talked about earlier? Status, ideas. You know what I hadn't had to do? I hadn't had to leave my wife. I mean, sometimes. <laughs> I had to leave you know, geographically. But listen to the things Jesus talks about here. Is that a possibility? Obviously it was. You know why Jesus is setting these things above other things? Because these are the things that are really important in life, aren't they? You know what he's saying? Whatever you have to sacrifice, guys, is worth it. That's what he's saying. Whatever you sacrifice for my sake is worth it. And I'll tell you why. Because the reward is greater than the sacrifice. Because he will receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. I'll tell you why we need to lose to win, because it's worth it, and we always come out a winner if we're willing to lose the things that God's asked us to lose for Christ's sake. <coughs> Friends, today we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ, and maybe you've never given your life to him. And I don't know what's in your heart. I don't know why the reason for that may be, but I'll tell you this. If something's holding you back because you know that you must give up some things, I want you to know it's worth it. It's worth it. The excellency of knowing Jesus is worth the cost. Maybe you're here today and your life's just out of sorts. Your heart's out of sorts. We, again, we don't know your heart. But if you need Jesus today to help you to make the resolve that you need to make, we offer the invitation of Christ at this time. Come have a seat on the front as we stand and we sing.